we're looking at today at, you know, what do we know about tattooing in history? Why were people tattooed? How were they tattoos applied? What sort of tools did they use? And looking at some stories of tattooed people from history. So, Matt, what do we know about tattooing in early history? So, like, look, I guess the answer to that is increasingly more, but still not very much. Um, there's, you know, there's amazing work being done by people much smarter than me who work on, like, really, really old stuff. So I'm, like, you know, I'm much more comfortable in the 19th and 20th centuries than I am in, the, in prehistory. And I'm really reliant for my knowledge on, like, super early stuff that we we're talking about today on kind of archaeologists and, and anthropologists and classicists who who work you know thousands of years ago rather than hundreds of years ago as I normally do, and also what's kind of weird on this is that or interesting on this is that as our scientific knowledge is increasing, we're, we're pushing back the kind of you know horizons of tattooing far into the past, but also like you know there's just an increasing number of like academics now who are interested in tattooing and who who kind of want to join the dots up who understand that kind of putting these ancient histories into a different kind of context is going to is going to improve our knowledge of of everything that follows so a lot of my knowledge on this comes from like people like uh, Aaron Dieter Wolf um an amazing archaeologist from Tennessee an amazing set of Egyptologists People like Anne Austin and like Rene Friedman, who are working on kind of tattooing in ancient Egypt, like all these amazing people that are like really trying to figure out what the hell's going on in the past with tattooing, because it's hard, right? Like tattooing, like we said last week, like doesn't last very long uh, after the human body dies, um, unless you try very hard to preserve it. And so, like for really ancient knowledge, we're super reliant on on bodies that have been deliberately or accidentally preserved in in ways and places that would like keep the skin intact. And some of this is to do, to do with climate change. You know, as as the world is thawing, like more bodies that were hidden for thousands of years under the ice are, are, are revealing themselves to us and things. But yeah, it's hard, and we and we don't know a huge amount. But but we're figuring stuff out more and more uh, uh, as things go on. So the oldest tattoos like we know about right now, actively specifically because we've got preserved skin, are about like five and a bit thousand years old. There's this like specimen that was dug up in the or dug up uncovered, you know, as the ice thawed due to climate change in the 90s in the Austro-Italian Alps. This specimen that's called Otzi, who we are going to talk about very soon. Yeah, so we'll talk about him. So and then there's some new um, new work being done by Rene Friedman in particular on like ancient Egyptian mummies, some of which are a bit younger, some of which are going to likely turn out to be a bit older than Otzi, whose tattoos are being revealed by like new imaging techniques. But actually, if we want to go like right back into prehistory, we need to look at like things like anthropomorphic sculpture, painting, images of people, and trying to work out if they're tattooed. So I think, you know, increasingly we're figuring out that tattooing is pretty much everywhere always, more or less. Certainly in um places where skin tones aren't really, really dark, where tattooing doesn't have the same kind of visual context. And everywhere, basically, because the technology to make a tattoo is pretty simple, you just need something sharp. And you need something to make a pigment out of, usually like, uh, you know, carbon black, lamp black soot, or some kind of, you know, plant-based pigment. Those are the two ingredients, and then we're off to the races, right? So in some places, those sharp implements are metal needles, copper or bronze needles, iron needles. Some of them, sometimes it's like bone, 
you know, turkey bone or, or, or some similar thing. Or in the Pacific, we're looking at things like turtle shell or some kind of like hard plant-based shell. Anything that anything you can make sharp, <laughs> um, you know, flints and stones as well. Because tattoos, tattooing was also not always just poked in down the skin, but sometimes it was sewn. Sometimes it was even like sort of semi-scarified, you know, like you cut, you cut the skin open and then rub pigment into the wound. But, you know, talking about those early and talking about those early uses of pigments and sharpened objects from natural materials, I think it's important as well to talk about art in early prehistory or what could be called antiquity. You know, a lot of us would probably think about cave paintings in northern Spain, a lot of early artifacts of carved figures. What is the context of, say, tattooing in what we already know about prehistoric art? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's almost impossible to tell with any great certainty because the data points are so slim, right? And even when you've got images or 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 or, uh, or depictions of of people with marks on them, it's impossible straightforwardly to tell if they are if those depictions are you know permanent marks or fantastical marks or or, or body paint or whatever they might have been. But basically, like the general consensus now amongst people that study this stuff is that tattooing seems to be pretty likely coincident with like other forms of what get called symbolic behavior so jewelry making painting and that is between like a hundred thousand and forty five thousand years ago it's a by about forty five thousand years ago symbolic behavior as it's called is pretty present all over the all over the world in in, in human and proto-human populations so like you know we're never going to know if tattooing is older or younger than cave painting let's say or carving, but like it seems pretty likely that they're about as old as each other. Because I mean, the tools to make a tattoo are the tools that you need for civilization in general, right? Like you need sharp things to make knives, you need fire for cooking and warmth. And like that's those two things are also the ingredients to to, to tattoo yourself, right? Yeah, you know, d- different cultures and different human moments in time have get tattooing at different points in time. Um, and certainly there is obviously like evidence of different um, of a kind of cultural contact sometimes with tattooing in these ancient civilizations. But basically, there isn't a single moment that we can point to which says like, you know, this is this is the Prometheus culture that stole tattooing from the gods and it spread everywhere else. You know, tattooing just seems to be this pretty, you know, embedded thing in, in human experience. I'm just thinking about some Cro-Magnon man going ug-ug, trying to explain a very complicated <laughs> prehistoric version of getting a clocks and roses tattoo all up down his forearm to the local tattoo artist. Yeah, well, this, but, but see, this is the point too, right? Like, you can't even tell, and, and this is an interesting even set of conversations amongst the people that are much more specialist in this stuff than I am, about what these tattoos were quote-unquote for. You know, there is a kind of instinct sometimes by anthropologists to read... This stuff is like purposive, you know, it's like these tattoos are magical, medicinal, uh, socially indicative, you know, like they show what status you are. And some of them seem more like some of those we'll talk about today, like seem a bit more likely to be in one or other of those than, than something else. But sometimes, you know, they may just have been a cool tattoo and we, we, we have no way through the fog of history to tell, <laughs> particularly because in every case, really, like of these ancient prehistoric tattoos, we're talking about you know, a couple of dozen 
specimens at the most, you know, like in total, let alone within an individual cultural tradition. Like we just haven't got data points to make any large scale inference about any ancient tattoo tradition. Um, although probably more so than ever now, people are really looking hard. Yeah, the study of history is a retrospective art. But one thing that you mentioned in the previous episode, which I really want to kind of dive into, is this ubiquitous history or um, concurrent history of the development of the lands of the painted people. This idea that there is a kind of continuity across cultures, across regions, that there is this idea of the lands of the painted people like popping up simultaneously or not necessarily simultaneously, but at the development of civilization, that the lands of the painted people is this idea that crops up. So where is kind of the first reference to that that pops up? So, yeah, so this is, again, like book plug, book plug, klaxon. Like that's plug the-, the book, plug the book, plug the book. <laughs> that's the that's the title. That's the title of the title of the book right painted people because talking about like the painted people in the british context that's like from about 325 bce like this uh, explorer called pythias of massalia <laughs> uh, i think that's pronounced correctly who yeah like circumnavigated britain ancient greek guy and took this Prithan, Welsh Celtic word, and like turned it into Britan, Britannique. And, and that's where we get kind of Britain as, as a potentially at least meaning land of land of the painted people. And then like a big tribe of the northern ancient Britons get called the Picts, again, kind of because of the pictures on their body. Probably weren't tattoos, as we said last time. But in any case, right, the idea that the that this place is a place where the where the painted people live, like we find that really commonly around the world, and we find that really commonly around, uh, you know, where basically where, where cultures who aren't tattooed demarcate themselves from others. So there's a big long list. The Spanish, for example, in the in in their early encounters in the New World, basically called this group of islands in 1526. These, these islands in the Western Pacific that are probably now what we call the Caroline Islands, um, Los Pintados. Land of the Painted People. There was a thought for a long time, although scholarships now thinks actually it's not quite right. But there was an idea that like the ancient kingdom of Vietnam, where there was a lot of tattooing, was called Von Long, Land of the Tattooed People. And um, actually, scholars now seem to think it means something like Land of the some particular like wading bird. But the the, <laughs> the word's very similar. But certainly, again, the, the reason even that linguistic kind of myth comes up is because their rival cultures and even in their own mythologies they understood their ancient country to be a place where tattooed people lived. And actually, that's a a perfect point to pivot as well, because I think a lot of history, you know, is couched in mythology, particularly when you're looking at history that is pre-written history. Oral history gets shrouded in myth and idolatry and then is brought into mythology. So is there any evidence of mythology representations of tattooing well, I mean, again, in like, history you know certainly what is interesting is as early modern historians and antiquarians begin to think about their own past and the pasts of the world that they're beginning to explore the idea that tattooing is part of these cultural histories is is you know is like completely part of of the idea of thinking about other people so like that Vietnamese example, for example, for, for you know, to to give a particular example here, is that the founder of Vietnam, right? The founding like 
kings of this kingdom that we now call Vietnam were like basically kind of empowered by like crocodile spirits. Like, let me let me get this exactly right because it's you know it's a it's a particular kind of interesting and exciting myth. If you can hear the clicking in the background, that is Matt desperately control F searching no, his yeah, book. Yeah, I'm just trying to I'm trying to um like read you the exact uh, the exact quote. I actually like literally am doing that. So here's uh here's a good here's a good quote, right? So, people in Vietnam uh, tattooed their foreheads and blackened their teeth. And um Marco Polo, who sort of in the like uh, 13th century, who's writing about this stuff I'll quote from him directly. So he says, quote, All the people, both men and women, are painted from head to toe in a way I will tell you. They have pictures made with needles all over their skin, depicting lions and dragons and birds and many other forms, done in such a way that they are indelible. They have on them their faces, their necks, their bellies, their hands, their legs, and everywhere. This is the procedure. To begin with, the person being painted has the various images he's chosen sketched out in black all over his body. This is done. He's tied hand and foot, held down by two or more men. Then the artist takes five needles, four fastened together in the form of a square, and the fifth in the centre, and starts pricking the client all over, following the outlines of the drawings. The instant pricks have been made, ink is applied to them, and eventually the figure as sketched appears in these pricks. Meanwhile, the clients suffer such agonies they might be thought sufficient to serve out purgatory. In fact, many of them die when they go under the needle, for they lose a great deal of blood. So the idea is that... These like um, tattoos are meant to be kind of sympathetic to a a sort of flood dragon, a kind of water spirit. There are these like Chinese writings as well, which say that yeah, we we tattoo our bodies with the designs of a dragon lord. So when we swim in the river, serpents will not violate us. So you know, tattooing and this relationship by kind of sympathetically relating to the dragon lords of the river are like what empowers this early king of Vietnam, Huang. Hung Vuong, sorry to all the Vietnamese, Vietnamese people listening. Uh, t- you know, tattooing kind of gets to authenticate you in that mystical tradition, mystical social tradition. And I think you know the other the other example of that from kind of all ancient oral history is that the origin, one of the origin mythologies, origin stories of the of the Inuit people is tattoo based uh, in some senses. So. Inuit women, uh, and I'm very grateful to my friend and scholar Maya Sia Luke Jacobson for, for explaining this to me. We did a sort of oral history where she sat down and explained all this to me because not much of it is in the history books, and what's in there is quite bad. Female tattooing of tattooing on the faces of, of Inuit women in the Arctic is essentially kind of representative of that the ancestor of the Inuit who became the son, a woman called Melina. The tattoos on the faces of, of Inuit women basically represent and, 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 and present and reproduce Melina's face. It's a long and complicated story, but essentially she flees into the heavens uh, to flee from her brother who is trying to kind of violate her. And so Inuit women, you see they have their mouths tattooed. It's, it's um, indicative of, this, of, the, of, the, of the frown, essentially, of, of, of Melina. So in, yeah, in particular places, you know, tattooing gets to be this, this mythologized really kind of indicative part of cultural experience. I think, as we mentioned earlier, you cannot have a discussion about ancient tattooing, tattooing in kind of pre-written history without talking about the big man, Otzi the Iceman. So, like you mentioned, Otzi was discovered in the 90s after thawing in the Alps. He was seen to have, is it 63 
tattoo yeah, marks. Yeah, something like that. Something in that in that region. Um, he's covered in these kind of little uh, like tally marks, basically. Dots yeah. And um, like he was he was uh like five and a half thousand years old, probably murdered, like shot in the back of the head with an arrow. Like really, like perfectly preserved. Bonus points for headshot. Bonus points for headshot. He's this like living in this period of history, like that's transitioning between the Stone Age and the and the and the, uh, the Neolithic Age, to be specific, and the Bronze Age. It's, it's called gets called the Copper Age. And yeah, like in 1991, these like climbers were like climbing the Alps, and they saw this body in the ice, and they were like, "What the hell is this?" They thought it was a murder victim initially. And they called out the cops, and it turned out, yeah, he had been murdered, but uh, quite a long, lot of time earlier than people realised. And he's the only like persons from his culture that we've found, so we can't know if like Otzi was like the only tattooed person ever, like in that culture, whether he was like some kind of cool pioneer. Probably not, right? Most of his tattoos uh, are in places where he could have tattooed himself, although even the the ones that. Uh, some of them are like play on his back, for example, or upper back. They're quite neat, so it's unlikely that he tattooed himself. So he probably was tattooed by someone else. Obviously, the original stick and pole king. Yeah, exactly. So he had these little, he had the, he had these like tally marks, basically these little kind of line marks all over his body, pretty much in places where he seemed to have had some kind of illness. So arthritis on his joints. He's got some on his like chest, which count against this kind of arthritis theory but then there's some also some sense that he had some kind of lung problem so obviously it's impossible to know like did he get tattoos because he thought that they would help the illness you know were they was the process of tattooing meant to be curative was it some kind of magical spiritual thing where you did the tattoo and some kind of god or spirit would come and heal it who knows like we don't know there's also some theories that this is some kind of you know something similar to acupuncture where like there were specific marks you could make at certain parts of the body that would act in a kind of curative way. I think because of the kind of, you know, the, the clear relationship between like these tattoo marks and his and his injuries and his illnesses, like it seems pretty clear to me that these marks are at least somehow related to some kind of broader sim- system of medicine or magic. But yeah, who knows? We don't know how he did them. So he's living in the in the like late Bronze Age, uh, late Stone Age, early Bronze Age, Copper Age. Like we we haven't found any copper needles. But the marks could have been scarred in, you know, by cutting open the skin and rubbing ash in. We know that the marks were made with ash from a fire. We know as well by like micro analysis of the pigment in his skin that he was tattooed at several times because it's different um, signatures of the carbon ink in his body. So he, he got tattooed more than once. But other than that, we don't know much about him, really, other than, you know, as I said, for the moment, he's, he's the oldest tattooed body that we can clearly radiocarbon date. And and I think it's super interesting that he's in Europe, which is surprising, I think, to a lot of people who imagine, again, that tattooing is something that isn't doesn't have a deep history in Europe. And also that it's so, so old, you know, as I said, it, it, Ots, we don't know anything about Otzi's cultural tradition at all, really. But what we do know is that, yeah, clearly, like, tattooing is part of, you know, he, he had great shoes, for example. Um, he's got a very well-preserved pair of shoes. Um, he had a kind of interesting like set of objects with him, like an axe and things. So yeah, as we were saying earlier on, like tattooing's part of this emerging complex set of human practices, you know, pretty much concurrently, right? It, it at that time it is emerging, but it's also concurrent with a lot of emerging symbolic practices in as 
we exit the Stone Age into the Neolithic Age, there's something that you mentioned in your book as well that I want to pick your brain on as well. It's some, I don't know what it means, but the phrase really, really stood out. It's Russian Bronze Age catacomb culture and other evidences that predate Otzi. Oh, yeah. So I don't write about them specifically in my in the book, just for the matter of time. So Otzi's the earliest like European, the oldest preserved tattoo we have. There's not a huge amount of tattooing after him that we found. I mean, again, partly probably due to conditions. You know, there aren't many places in Europe where bodies can survive that long. Um, there isn't a huge amount. Well, there's no evidence uh, of tattooing after Otzi yet until about four thousand years later. So we've got this huge gap. You know, until we get sort of till we sort of get to the Iron Age, really. What evidence we do have, like around the same time as him, uh, and in that gap, is from Egypt. So there's some some Egyptian mummies that are uh, currently a, a, about as old, probably with new research, slightly older than him. And they actually have, we'll talk about them in a second, but they have like sort of symbolic tattoos on them, graphic tattoos. But, you know, about five, six hundred years younger than Otzi, there uh, is a tattooing culture in, um, yeah, that's called the catacomb culture, basically, from sort of southern parts of Russia, modern, modern day Russia, about 3,000 years old. So, yeah. About five, six hundred years younger than Otzi, so to speak. And they, uh, again, just from a, a, a couple of bodies that have been discovered, these, uh, you know, and, and, and they're discovered because they were also preserved in, in ice and, and, and these things called kurgans, like burial tombs, um, with a series of marks like tattooed on their uh, arms and legs, like wiggly lines, which the people that write about them suggest maybe indicative of snakes because there's some kind of snake cult thing happening there maybe or maybe maybe sort of indicative of some social social role and what's also interesting about those is like they're black those tattoos but some of them most of them but some of them are also like red like a kind of dark red color because the pigment is is a um a plant-based pigment so the best work on this was done quite a while ago actually um but there's new work being done by some uh, Russian, well, by some Russian uh, scholars called Natalia Shishlina, um, Evie Bekelevich, and An Ushachuk. Uh, if you want to look those up, uh, working at the State Historical Museum, like really trying to figure out like these histories as well. And so again, like you know, that's it, it seems to me at least likely that if you know, they're, they're they're slightly younger than Nazi, but there's no reason to think that there aren't older examples of that culture that we haven't just haven't discovered yet, right? It's kind of kind of amazing. There's also a really good book on this particular kind of ancient history called Ancient Ink, edited by Aaron D. Wolf and Lars Kurtak, um, which again like outline a lot of this stuff in a lot of, a lot more detail than I go into it in my book. But um, for my purposes, like I was just super interested in this point that like tattooing seems to be everywhere always, and like. The more we look, we the more we find, you know? I think it's important to discuss as well, since we're talking about a lot of history that's been borne out through archaeological discovery and anthropology. Once again, like I said earlier on, understanding of history is a retrospective art form. We are always looking to the past with current eyes. And Otzi is considered the oldest tattooed person because it has the most complete story. Like it's very clear and understandable that his body is tattooed for what reason we don't know. Yeah. But it's easily explainable and understandable that Otzi had tattoos. And with history, and I'm sure, well, I don't know if any archaeologists are going to get mad at me about this. When you look at the discovery process of artifacts, 
when we're looking at them with current eyes, we may not necessarily understand the context in which a lot of objects might have been used. So say we could see a bowl and we would think that it's a bowl because that's what we understand bowls to be and how bowls are used. But it could have been used for something else. Now, that can play in the opposite direction as well, is that we might overcomplicate the intended uses and purposes of objects. But like you said, needles could be made out of anything. But on the same, uh, on the other side of the page, these objects could have been used for sewing or something else. And we might be thinking about it wrong. So it's worth keeping an open mind in when we're looking at bodies from thousands of years ago and looking at these small noticeable marks they are tattoos but what they were for we don't know and that's the really fun part of history is unpacking it yeah and and and, and this is where mistakes and errors have come in as well where people and uh, you know uh, we all do this like putting our we're doing it now probably some degree putting our current understanding of tattooing or of anything onto the past and and, and extrapolating so for example like so the, the, the these this tattooing in ancient egypt like most of the tattoos that we found across pre-dynastic and dynastic Egypt are, are have been on women. And so in the 1940s and 50s, when this stuff was being first studied about in depth um, or written about in depth, the idea was like, well, the only people that have tattoos are, are sex workers, you know, are women, are courtesans, are, are loose women. So these women, because they've got tattoos, these female mummies must be must be courtesans, must be sex workers, must be concubines of some kind, right? That's just sort of going, oh, well, the only people that get tattoos are sex workers and therefore these tattooed mummies from thousands of years ago are also sex workers. But actually, of course, like more recent research and more, 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 um, more sympathetic thinking has kind of said, actually, it's more likely that those women were, had high social roles or they were kind of priestesses or, or, or whatever it might be. We can't assume just from the fact they had tattoos that they were quote-unquote concubines. And that's the thing, right? We're always trying to be contextual. And there's a lot of interesting work being done in, in the really prehistoric space to try and unpick these things. Like, how do we tell the difference between a tattooing needle and a medicinal needle? How do we tell the difference between a, a kit for sewing nets and a kit for for making tattoos. So the best examples of this, I think, being done are in in the US. So uh, Aaron, uh, I've mentioned a couple of times already, has been doing amazing work going through like needles made from bone, uh, often turkey bone, from prehistoric sites from Native American communities in the United States, and looking at them under microscope and going like. Can we tell the difference between a tattooing needle and a needle used for leatherworking or a needle used for other purposes, needle used for sewing cloth? And his hypothesis is, because he basically like made some needles, some new ones, tattooed himself with them, then looked at the wear patterns under a microscope and, and the pigment distributions, and has basically developed, a, as far as I'm concerned, a very coherent and compelling way of determining the difference between a tattoo needle and other kinds of needles. And by doing that, like he's recently pushed the history of tattooing back in North America by a thousand years. Like we're back to about five thousand years as well in North America now. We haven't got bodies that old that are tattooed, but we can now do carbon dating and analysis on and other kinds of you know radiometric dating on on those and figure out that actually tattooing tools are older than we thought. That said, you know, like that can work in the other direction, and there's lots of examples. From, for example, possible Celtic tattooing, where there's lots of arguments about like, are these tattooing tools or not? I think, again, as I said last week, more recent research seems to suggest probably not. 
but there are people that argue otherwise. It's really hard to do that kind of toolware use analysis on metal needles compared to bone ones. And so, you know, there are there are lots of arguments by by academics who are looking at compl- what are called complexes, groups of objects, bowls, needles, mirrors, even um, from places, for example, in uh, like Eurasia. And saying this must be tattooing, and other scholars saying mm, prob- that probably isn't. This is probably more likely something else. Like, for example, there's a really interesting essay in that ancient ink ink book about tattooing in what is sort of eastern part of modern Russia, where the author of that paper, a guy who's recently sadly departed, an amazing scholar called Le- Yablonsky, like argued that these were probably tattoo tools. But actually, other academics have said, well, these needles have got eyelets in them. So they're probably used for sewing with thread rather than for tattooing. But we've got to kind of, you know, we've got we've got a guess, and actually, and we've not got a guess, but we've got to kind of make informed guesses. And actually, what's also super interesting, and again, the Egyptian mummies are the best example of this. It's where the best work's being done at the moment. Is we can go back to bodies that we've had as mummies in 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 museums and 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 in you know storages and collections all over the world for hundreds of years since the Victorian period onwards. And look at them using like new kinds of inf- infrared and X-ray spectrography, and like we find tattoos like hide literally hiding in plain sight. So some of the oldest tattoos that are, as I said, likely to be en- end up older than Otzi from pre-dynastic Egypt in like basically kind of near modern-day Sudan, naturally mummified. So they died in the desert. They weren't actively mummified, but they're about again about five and a half thousand years old. There's a man and a woman. They have the, the man has a big tattoo of a bull on his arm, credible. Um, but it was completely invisible until Renee Friedman and her colleagues like recently put him under some some new kinds of scanning technology. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, actually, he's this guy's got a tattoo that isn't visible to the naked eye anymore. And I think like the this is the thing with tattooing. The more we look for it, you know, there was this theory, as I said a few times already, like tattooing was rare. Tattooing was. Other, otherwise, it was from somewhere else. But actually, the more we look, the more tattoo we find, you know, everywhere. Everyone knows that tattoo aftercare is one of the most important steps in getting a new tattoo. We all want our fresh new tattoos to heal as easily and hassle-free as possible so we can show them off to the world. That's why Sanoderm's here to help. Driven by science and innovation, Sanoderm products have been thoroughly tested and used by doctors and tattoo artists alike for over 10 years. Sanoderm brings cutting-edge technology to make your tattoo healing process a breeze. No more messing around with cleaning and plastic every few hours with Sanoderm's amazing range of aftercare products. I personally have used Sanoderm to heal my tattoos in the past, and they made what used to be a daily process of setting reminders on my phone to clean and rewrap my tattoo into a one-step process. Their medical-grade products include aftercare balms, soaps, and my favourite, their second skin aftercare bandages. Sanoderm's tattoo bandages are designed to be waterproof, breathable, and keep your new tattoo protected from whatever the elements can throw at it so you can get on with your day worry-free and confident your new tattoo will look vibrant and will heal faster. Plus, their products are all natural and ethically sourced, so you can take comfort in knowing that you're healing your tattoos with nature's finest ingredients. So next time you're in an artist's chair, why not try Sanoderm, healing your tattoos the modern way so you can get on with your day. Check out the link in the description of this episode for discounts on a range of Sanoderm products or for more information. Hey, are you enjoying the show? If you really like Beneath the Skin and you want to help support us, 
you can do so on Patreon. For little as five quid a month, you can help make this show possible, help us buy research materials. So if you like the show and you want to support us, consider kicking us a few quid a month and you'll get everything from bonus episodes to Q&As and you can even vote on what tattoo I'll get when we reach a certain subscriber count. Matt, have you got anything to say? You should really definitely uh, fund the Patreon because tattoo history is massive, right? Deep, wide, complicated. We're covering some big hit topics on the main feed, but on the Patreon subscriber-only feed, we'll be getting into some really more interesting niche deep topics you don't want to miss out on and honestly the chance to kind of decide what thomas gets on his body is probably just a once in a lifetime opportunity subscribe chuck us a few quid don't miss out on this chance to ruin thomas's body forever speaking of egypt as well i really want to talk about the gebel line man if i'm saying that properly and you know symbolic representation in egypt and you know, when we think about, you know, early tattooing, obviously we have Otzi, but when we look at the first early representation of symbols and tattoos that had symbolic meaning other than the marks that are on Otzi, we think of Egypt and we think of mummies. So, you know, what's the story here? Yeah, so so the Gebeline man and the Gebeline woman uh, are those uh, pre-dynastic Egyptian specimens I was just talking about, right? So. For a long time, um, this this specimen, this human body, let's let's get this right, got called kind of quite dismissively like ginger because he's got red hair. But like you know, I think scientists have sort of thought this is a bit disrespectful. This is a real human specimen. It's this guy was had a human life, so let's let's be respectful. So they call him the Gabeline Man because that's where he was found in a town that was at the time called Gabeline. He was. Brought to London uh, in 1899 by British Egyptologists. He's been on display like for over a hundred years in the in the British Museum, on open display basically. And yeah, as I said, it was only like literally uh, in 2014 that these tattoos on his arms, which you know date back five and a half thousand years, became like visible. There's a if you squinted very closely, you might have seen a very kind of green smudge. But basically, like. He's got this kind of wild, like uh, almost like animated looking bull on his arm um, and a sheep as well. And they uh, they are animals that have some kind of like constant presence in 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 the earthenware pottery and, 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 and cave art of the time. You know, again, who knows what these theories are all about, like what these tattoos are all about. Were they socially indicative? You know, does this guy, is this guy part of the quote-unquote bull tribe? You know, again, in quotes, yeah, are these tattoos indicative of, like, did he go and kill a bull and it's his first hunt and it's a kind of ad- ad maturity thing? We don't know. Uh, again, um, the people who are much more specialist this than I am have different arguments. You know, could it just be that tattoos, uh, bull tattoos were cool that year? Who knows? But yeah, again, what we do know is that tattooing um, is part of this cultural tradition and it's on men and women. There's uh, not many um, specimens from this cultural tradition, but there are a few. Many of them um, have tattoos. Uh, the, the, ma- the man, as I said, has these animal tattoos on him. The female specimen has like things that are a bit less straightforward. They are like uh, 
um, an S design on her collarbones, which might be birds. Again, they're similar to things that are on pottery. Yeah, but Lion Lady was the uh, the first example of someone getting the cool S tattooed on them. Yeah, so she's yeah the cool S exactly. She's got these S's on her collarbones. Basically, it's 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 impossible to to, to know exactly what's going on with with these tattoos, but. Again, what we can say is that they're there. They're, they're tattoos which are part of a broader set of cultural conversations. And and they are, um, yeah, they have until very recently been invisible. And actually, because most of the tattooed, tattooed mummies that we'd found that had visible tattoos were women, as I said, there was this big misconception about what tattooing was doing in, in pre-dynastic, and, and, uh, which is, you know, before the pharaohs, Egypt, and then onwards. Those those tattoos may relate to something you know, which again is more southerly, which is which moves down from North Africa. Who who knows? But again, we're really reliant on a new generation of scholars with new new technology and new kind of openness to these things to look at look at this stuff afresh. And and, and yeah, the more the more we look, the more we find. As art and expression kind of evolves, you see more and more ritual evolve out of symbolic expression and then incorporation into cultural practices and ones that I really am fascinated with, like the early Egyptian mummies, is around burial rituals. You're buried with gold, with weapons, with all these things, and how tattooing may have factored into that. And one culture that we spoke about before, briefly in the last episode, is the Scythians, you know, a culture that had quite a lot of ritual built into everyday life and there is really good example from the Scythians called Lady Altai am I saying it correct Matt? Yeah I think yeah so the Altai princess uh, Oki Oki Bala I think is is the kind of local mythological name for her she gets called the Ice Pazric Princess the Ice Maiden yeah very I mean complicated history but yeah I mean again like so the other example before we get on to her of 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 afterlife you know, tattooing is that in in uh, in Inuit communities, the idea was that without your tattoos, you couldn't pass into the spirit world, into the kind of other world of the spirits. Like tattooing is this kind of indic- indication of your ancestral relationship, and that's true. That's true of tattoo traditions uh, in a lot of places. You know, it kind of authenticates your cultural uh, allegiances. But again, yeah, the after after those. Um, Otzi and those those Egyptian tattoos, tattooing history and uh, is difficult to piece together. And we really are dealing with a kind of very piecemeal set of histories around the world. There's some in Latin America as well, the Chinchorro people who have tattooed moustaches, essentially. But I think, again, like some of the best and most exciting, like preserved bodies in death are those those ones from the Scythian cultures uh, of, 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 of Siberia. And yeah, the 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 ice the the, the ice maiden Okibala, Lady Altai, or whatever you want to call her, she so she's about three thousand years younger than Otzi. Dates from about five hundred BCE, so still like two and a half thousand years old for you know from from the present day. But again, dug up from the I mean, dug up, uncovered in the permafrost uh, again in the nineties, and pretty incredibly perfectly preserved with. Full, like essentially full sleeves. Um, these amazing, like how much? How much did she pay for them? How much did she pay yeah, for them? How much for a sleeve? I mean, probably a lot, right? Because her tattoos are amazing, and I again encourage like people listening to kind of Google image search uh, uh, ice maiden tattoos or, or pa- pa- Pazeric princess tattoos. 
because they are like these incredible scenes of like animals like leaping some some which seem to be potentially like real animals like horses some which are kind of these fantastical like griffin like things that are half there's an amazing tattoo she's got of a like leopard hunt she's just like mind-blowingly good again we haven't got a huge amount of Sivian bodies discovered but most of those that have been found have had tattoos some of them which which got found in the same area like all seem to have like similar designs and were therefore were probably tattooed by the same person you know some like ancient version of tattoo flash what's really clear in her case and in most of the cases of Scythian tattoos uh, Scythian burials that we found is that the people that were buried are very high status she was buried with gold with a wig with her horses who'd been ritually killed with a kind of meal to shepherd her into the afterlife there's an amazing um account uh, of when they were removing her from the permafrost quite kind of controversially to modern day archaeological eyes but the people that were discovering they were basically pouring hot water on the grave to to melt the ice and it started you started getting this smell of this like lamb which had been frozen pretty much as soon like you know in the frost like a couple of couple of months after she died so this kind of smell of her final meal was like coming back uh two and a half thousand years later but it was her her tattoos and her tattooed hand and her tattoos tattooed arms um which like really first almost like you know like a kind of scene from a film like arose from the ice um again there's an amazing quote i'll read this out from the archaeologist that that um removed this woman from her grave they call her the lady in the crook of the lady's knee was a red cloth case containing a small hand mirror of polished metal with a deer carved in its wooden back. Beads round around her wrist and more tattoos decorated her wrist and thumb. She was tall, about five feet six. She doubtless been a good rider and the horses in the grave were her own. As we worked, the fabric gradually revived around her limbs, softening the outline of her legs and the swell of her hip. And somehow, in that moment, the remains became a person. She lay sideways like a sleeping child with her long, strong, aristocratic hands crossed in front of her. Forgive me, I said to her. So like this kind of like thawing tattooed arm and hand and a lot of these Hazaric people had like birds tattooed in their thumbs. And it was, you know, these tattoos which kind of revealed her to be a human. And we can kind of maybe figure out a lot about their culture's life world from, from the tattoos that she had in her body. And I think it's also, in addition to this story, you know, her body wouldn't have been preserved in the way it was if her grave had been forgotten about and another person was buried then on top of her, which was, you know, quite a common practice. And the grave robbers uh, or whoever, thieves, had pillaged that grave that was above her and taken everything, not knowing what was underneath. And I find that completely fascinating that through this lucky chance in history, we have some of the most beautifully preserved, you know, old tattoos in history. Yeah, I mean, that is, uh, you summarize that really, really nicely. Like, so her body survived because a later culture, either kind of, who knows why, maybe as an active kind of desecration or, or, or utility or something, just had buried their own dead above her in the permafrost. So we're talking like basically in Siberia kind of near like yeah near borders uh, with mongolia and and one of the stans i think kazakhstan or kyrgyzstan one of those ones um but basically 
yeah, uh, above her was buried this this other body. And so over the centuries or, or millennia, basically, like anyone that came to rob the body just saw an empty grave that had already been robbed and not much going for it. But based on kind of local knowledge and based on, yeah, it's, again, climate change, you know, as these permafrosts began to thaw and as basically in the in the era post, in the post-Soviet era of the 90s, like it just became easier to do these kind of investigations and also quite physically quite different as well. These these archaeological practices uh, in Russia and in the former Russian former Soviet Union, like that, that's that's the kind of thing that was happening. It's a very brief window of time, so we're losing a lot of those now to climate change. But also, again, as like local politics has changed, so basically what happened was after the fall of the Soviet Union, there's this increased kind of need to find things that connect people across that part of the world, other than the fact we're all part of the Soviet Union because obviously they weren't anymore. And so there was this kind of quest to kind of create some kind of ethnic monomyth about people from uh, what, what was the Soviet Union. And so this region is called the Altai region. And the people there, you know, they have an indigenous tradition. They consider themselves increasingly like not Russian, <laughs> right? They are Altai. This is a tradition going back, you know, right the way back to, to you know, again, talked about by the ancient Greeks. but. Essentially, like as those cultures have kind of you know developed um, politically over the last kind of twenty or thirty years, they've gone like, stop digging up our ancestors, please. Like, don't do that. Like, we're not, we don't want you to do that. And and you know, archae- archaeology has become a bit more, um, a bit more ethical, a bit more ethical than it had been over the over the last few decades. So we're not gonna, uh, we're not gonna find many more these kind of these kind of digs, if you want to call them that. These kind of expeditions aren't so kosher anymore they don't happen so much anymore uh, it's all they're banned actually in lots of places and we're just going to lose a lot of these bodies because climate change is thawing the frost and so these bodies which have been preserved for so long aren't surviving so this is a very brief and very again very partial window into these cultural histories and i think it's also important to note that talking about the gebelian man and lady and otzi and egyptian mummies that a lot of our view into early history is completely drenched in colonialism the fact that we brought up the british museum um that's a contentious topic as well that a lot of these artifacts these people's bodies that were buried in their homes were just taken willy-nilly i obviously the area has gotten quite a lot more ethical now but you know, a lot of these people were, for want of a better word, robbed of their burial rights. They were taken from where they were either ritualistically buried or laid to rest. And with the littlest amount of respect, if you look at early British Egyptology, stuff was destroyed, stuff was taken, stuff was taken out of context and used in a way that fueled a dominant monomyth. We can't really discuss this sort of thing without acknowledging that bad part of history yeah this is um you know this is exactly kind of one of the complicated things uh, in this area which is that and i'm I, i've def- done it myself in this conversation you, we talk about specimens we talk about you know but actually we're talking about human bodies we're talking about real life human beings and again the, the museum ethics about the preservation of human bodies is changing rapidly for the better uh, as local communities, indigenous communities around the world, in the Americas, in the Pacific, in in, in Africa, in uh, in the Arctic, all over the place, are kind of basically 
gaining the political and cultural ability to say, hey, it really wasn't cool that you came and dug up all our ancestors. Thank you very much. Don't do that again. Or please send them back for repatriation. On the one hand, you know, the study of these ancient practices by Western scholars becomes harder. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, these bodies are human bodies and um, we need uh, we need to think about them as, as, as human lives, not just as indicative of some kind of weird culture to be gawped at. I mean, I think I think really the, the, the Altai princess is really interesting. As I said, locals in Altai call her Okibala, which is a kind of uh, a specific figure of their legend of their legend and they're like this is her this is that figure of specific figure of legend russians after she was discovered were basically kind of they took her away to a museum in the um uh, west of of the russian federation and they studied her and they did dna testing and said no she's not altai she's russian and she's nothing like the modern people that live there like archaeology and history in generally general is used for political purposes, I think where we talk about human bodies, that's even more the case. I mean, I, I want to come back to her in a second, but just uh, as a because it's something else I want to finish up saying about her. But there's another re- more recent example of of tattoos being used in that way from New Zealand, far after the time period we're talking about. But like lots of um, what are called moko tattooed preserved heads were brought to Europe after the Pacific encounters. These were objects uh objects these were kind of, yeah they i mean they were objects they were they were things that were created by maori people as as um as sort of significant of their ancestors but then they were captured in battle or they were traded um when peace was resumed europeans were like these things are cool we'll bring them back to europe we'll put them in museums some of them actually were sold um some of them were created specifically by maori uh, to to make money or to get weapons and stuff. So it's a complicated story. But basically, when, when repatriation questions were asked in, in, in the last sort of couple of decades, hey, we should probably send these back. You know, they shouldn't be on display. They're, they're human remains, but also they're specific sacred objects with really significant importance. We should probably send them back. In France, and also in Britain, actually, but the, the specific case I think about is, is in France, said, well, these aren't, these aren't, human remains or these aren't just human remains because they've got tattoos on them they're also art right and so they're part of our kind of artifactual history as well as being human beings so the fact even that these things are tattooed these things are tattooed these these specimens these bodies are tattooed changes their designation in some senses for museums so that's kind of weird this gets even darker and this is where i come back to okibala because in her case so she has now been repatriated from museums in in the west of of Russia to a good. Well, you say good, and I think good, but right. So there's a specific thing that happens. So there's a local indigenous independence movement in Alt in the Altai region, and there's now indigenous politicians and a big independence movement there. And there's a now museum of indigenous Altai history, including Pazaric and Scythian art and culture and artifacts. Right. So all, all well and good, right? However, Gazprom, the Russian state-owned gas company, paid for the museum and paid for the repatriation. Now, that seems weird because they're kind of pro-Kremlin and pro-state on the one hand. But on the other hand, if the local politicians are not on side, they can't dig big gas pipes in Siberia. And so 
in one of the most like cynical and complicated stories of like indigeneity in contemporary curating, basically this this big independence movement indigenous curating project and the repatriation of this mythical legendary important figure from two and a half thousand years ago is basically part of quite a in my opinion and by the opinion of the scholars on whose work i rely to tell this story um are basically cynically abusing that indigenous movement to carry on doing the things they were going to do anyway aka digging big gas pipes across the region like it's kind of amazing that this on the one hand wonderful and important story of repatriation and cultural history and cultural heritage and identity has been repurposed uh, I guess, as always, for capitalism. And reduced to a political football. But I think I think that's a really, really good place to kind of draw this to a close because there is a problem that we're going to run into increasingly as we transition from, you know, antiquity and early written history into what, you know, is commonly called the modern era and you know, medieval age, is that there is a huge gap in what we understand as tattoo history. Obviously, there is huge gaps in history in general with these eras, but particularly, I don't know if Matt, you'll disagree, is, you know, the changes in burial practices, the migration into other parts of the world, you know, bodies weren't preserved in the same way they were beforehand. And we're lacking simply lacking bodies to look at and some people may have you know seen this as a way to say a narrative of well tattooing pre you know christ era was you know symbolic of savagery we're going to come back to this again and again that this is a a profane art that was done before the age of civilization but this was done all the time and it continued to happen it's just that we don't necessarily have enough evidence to really make assumptions about it but you know if you keep listening we might delve into this in a later episode and maybe a good a good story to really finish this off here because it's such such a good example of the problem right so i've mentioned a lot about evidence of ancient britons not being tattooed or not being tattooed and i mentioned that earlier in this episode but like we also have the problem that like again sort of for political purposes either to connect an ancient population to a contemporary one or to separate them you have people like just making shit up Right. So the most famous example of this, and I mention it again briefly in the book, is the work of this guy in uh, Germany called Alfred Dieck, who in the 1970s basically was like, oh, I found loads of bog bodies. And we haven't found any bog bodies in Britain um, that have been tattooed. Those that we have found seem to be have clay uh, pigment on their skins rather than with tattoos, although a bog doesn't preserve... Uh, people doesn't preserve skin in the same way that I saw the desert sands of Egypt do. So, again, with all those kind of caveats. But Deke was like, yeah, I found like 2,000 bog bodies. Like, they're all covered in tattoos. He said he found these, like, these these bodies that were recorded, uh, or they were initially discovered in 1884. Uh, this guy found them. Like, uh, there was a fat lady with tattoos on her hands. And basically, he... These um, academics in the 90s um, basically went and looked for the evidence of this. They were like, where did all these bodies go? Where's all the... And essentially, yeah, he made, he made this shit up, right? Like, the people that he said found these bodies don't exist. The bodies themselves have vanished. They're not written by, about by anyone else. They found in his, like, 
archive files after he died, like archaeological or, or anthropological images of tattooing in elsewhere in the world that he just copied onto a sketch of a mummy. Like, I guess because it was important to kind of tell a kind of story of cultural continuity for him in Central Europe. I don't know his politics in detail, but like the idea was that, oh, look, I in Germany and Austria can kind of trace our cultural history back to the Iron Age. Well, it turns out, yeah, turns out he made it all up. So there's still no preserved like bog bodies, probably won't be given the way that those bog bodies preserve skin. And we've just kind of got a guess. And we've just, and, and the problem is as well, those, those myths of pervasive, like not just in academia, but in culture, like there's this sense that we are, we're this, you know, that, that we either did or didn't have tattooing. And actually the story is, as we're getting to, way more complicated. Thank you.